0: Okay, Bismillahir Rahmanir We express our praise and gratitude to Allah. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. And we're continuing our exploration of reasoning with God, reclaiming Sharia in the modern age by Khalid Abu al Fadl. And uh, would you like to read? Are you able to see it on your screen?
1: I can. Finally, I have my laptop. <laughs> So, Bismillah, um, perhaps the clearest articulation in Islamic jurisprudence of the distinctive spaces occupied by the sacred and profane is the categorical differentiation between the rights of God, hu-hu-hullo, hu-hu-hullo, and rights of humans, al ibad.
0: Okay, Was very good? good. Yeah, and yeah, I'll just keep interrupting you at random points. So, uh, a couple of big terms here. Before even getting to the two hukuks, we have the sacred and the profane. And this is, this is a, a term that's used especially in sociology of religion. Uh, uh, the idea being that certain things are sacred, and then by extension, everything else is not. And, and so, for example, uh, in our outlook, the whole world is a masjid, right? I mean, it's one of the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. But there are certain places you can't pray, you know, like, like a bathroom or something or somebody else's house you can't go walk in someone else's house and just start praying and and so so one of the questions in the study of religion is how does a belief system uh, takes uh define what is sacred and what is not uh if we were to say skip religion for a second and if we were to speak of american culture and i'm saying excuse me official american culture um not necessarily pop culture. What are some things that in American culture or America are considered to be sacred? What would you include there?
1: American, that would be like individualism, capitalism.
0: (laughs) So those I would say would be more uh, uh, a consequence of some of it. I'd say even simpler than that, the US constitution would be sacred. Have you ever been to like the, the rotunda in the, in, the, in the capital where they keep the Declaration of Independence and everything? And, and there it's like you're walking into a temple. You know, there's a guard there who's making sure you don't take photographs and which is almost asking you to, you know, try to see if you can sneak in a photograph. But, but the point is that it's treated very much like a temple. Like this is literally our sacred document. And then uh, having said that, that's part of, of the shock for many people of the insurrection mm-hmm. because the, the, the rebellion or the terrorists, whatever you want to call them, literally went into sacred space. And so even we think, even though we think of politicians as corrupt and selling out the country for their own personal gain and such, we still consider as a society, officially, we consider that space sacred space Mm -hmm. and and so societies even secular will also have sacred and profane Mm -hmm. and so thus speaking here in our context um you know what else do we consider sacred we would consider the human the human being sacred Mm -hmm. we consider like i said the world itself is sacred Mm -hmm. and then by extension we would even consider culture to be sacred Mm -hmm. And a way to think about this is is that you have humans who've been placed in the world. Humans, by default, are considered to be sacred, which also means innately good and innately valuable. And then the world is by default sacred, which includes innately good and innately valuable. And when you mix humans with the world, you get culture. In culture, I'm including uh, what we would call here would be orf, which would be essentially your common practices, how you do things in your particular society. And so, for example, in our society, meaning uh, American society, we have norms in terms of gender interaction. We have norms in terms of here's how and when you eat. We have norms in terms of privacy. Um, and then if we were to go to the subcontinent, we have different norms of all of these things. If we go to sub-Saharan Africa, we have different norms of all these things. And there's a common notion in our community that this is Islam and that's culture. But uh, that, when we look at the history of Islam, it's harder to actually make the separation between the two. So, uh, is a lot of the thing. a lot of times when we're saying this is Islam and this is culture, that's sort of our way of saying this is sacred, this is profane. Because when we're doing the separation, we're often saying, you know, these bad things that don't represent Islam.
1: And but profane, I'm I mean, sorry, profane is bad things. I mean, because I know like profane words are bad.
0: Yeah. So when we're when we're contrasting sacred with profane, mm-hmm. uh, it includes bad, but essentially just means things that are not sacred. Okay. And so, uh, but it will definitely include things that we might find offensive or repulsive. Mm -hmm. But the general notion in terms of Islamic law is that culture is sacred. So things that we find to be a problem in a culture uh, very often are excesses Mm -hmm. as opposed to things that the culture would endorse. So an example of that would be, you know, so-called honor killings. Mm -hmm. right and so honor killings are associated with a certain demographic and uh i'm skeptical that any culture actually endorses honor killings uh that to me seems to be a dysfunction upon a dysfunction upon a dysfunction Mm -hmm. which could be related to all kinds of other things influencing it but similarly (laughs) one of the questions becomes that's especially relevant to us is what is American culture mm-hmm. and, and and that's hard to say because just like you mentioned capitalism it's almost like capitalism is American culture because American business almost defines all the changes that happen in our society mm-hmm. and so so that's one of, one of the questions of, of just living uh, Islam in America Anyways, having said that, he's speaking of these two concepts. And if there's two terms to know from the whole book, it would be these two terms the rights of Allah, hukuk Allah, and the rights of humans. Mm -hmm. And and hukuk al ibad, the rights of humans, uh, some in contemporary thought will expand that to me to include, uh, you know, not just humans, but animals, the environment, and such. Mm And, and this is also one of the issues of, of modern life or postmodern life. Uh, for example, if we were to look at Zabiha rules, right? I mean, I always talk about how my MSA students only care about Zabiha meat, med school, marriage, you know, and, and jinns. But uh, in terms of, of Zabiha meat what is the focus of uh, a common consumer of Zabiha meat in Chicago in 2021? It's like, all right, was it slaughtered properly? With zero focus on how is the animal treated from birth. And, and why is that the case? Because in the past, it was assumed that the animal was treated properly, right? You, that you treat the animal properly just because that's what you do. But with mass consumption and mass production, that becomes an issue now. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, (laughs) uh, I make a point to my undergrads that, I mean, I can buy my meat at, you know, one of the shops in Devon that are in such competition that they actually have to buy the lowest quality meat Mm -hmm. to be able to sell it for the lowest price Mm -hmm. with the smallest amount of markup. And if I go to Chipotle, I'm going to get better quality meat mm-hmm. because the animals actually treated better. And cleaner. And cleaner. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's right.
1: It's really sad, right? The all places, are dis- most of them are disgusting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I only know this because I've had students whose families have run, you know, restaurants on Devon or they've run the farms that restaurants buy from. Mm-hmm. And they've literally told me this, that the, the, that the halal store is literally buy the lowest quality meat because the competition is so fierce. Yeah. And so before uh, the treatment of the animal would have been something that's just assumed what we would call humane treatment, but now it's, it's actually a, a thing of concern. Mm-hmm. So these are the two big categories. Uh, uh, honey, can you see the, the, the screen? Right, so, right, yeah. so, we're talking about hukukullah and hukuk al ibad. And the basic point being that, uh, I mean, al-Allah is basically your rituals. And then hukukul ibad would be the rights uh, that everybody else has. The default is humans, but the example I'm making here is that we might, over the course of the next few years and decades, especially see this expanded to treatment of animals. I mean, it's still within treatment of animals anyway. Right? So even the prophet used to speak about the proper treatment of animals. You can't overload them in terms of the, the weight you put on them and such. And you're not supposed to abuse them. But the point I'm making is that in a lot of our history, that was just normal manners. But in our contemporary world of mass consumption, mass production, uh, animals are treated less than you know living things. and That becomes a concern. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know what the situation is now with, with the, the Zabiha industry, but there was a period of time in the early part of the century where people were selling uh, what was essentially organic uh, organic halal Zabiha meat. But even then, at the time of the slaughter of the animal, the animal would still get stunned into paralysis. And then they would do the, 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 the slaughter. And so it's actually very hard to find true 100% you know, Islamic meat, meaning that it's treated humanely from the moment of birth, all the way, including the moment and process of slaughter. Mm-hmm. But these are the, the, these are two important terms in the law. We'll, we'll see what else he has to say. All right, uh, Amin, if you want to continue.
1: Muslim jurists agreed that humans cannot benefit or harm God. And so unlike the rights owed to human beings, the rights of God do not involve any actual interests of God.
0: Okay, so that statement is pretty straightforward, right? Uh, but it comes down, uh, why is it a point that needs to be made? It's how do we determine what is a right? Uh, that what you can infer from here is that there may be something related to the right of safety. Mm-hmm. So you can't hurt a law. So what do you, you know, the right of safety doesn't really apply there. Mm-hmm. And when you're ready, can continue. Keep going? Yeah.
1: Okay. Depending on the context, the word *hukuk* singular haq, huk, referred to the province, jurisdiction, boundaries, or limits of God, hudud Allah. Interestingly, al ibad* did not refer to public or common rights, but to the material interests and benefits belonging to each human being as an individual.
0: Okay, so another two other uh, big terms. So another uh, uh, important term to note is hudud Allah. And so here, uh, as stated, these are the limits that Allah allows. And a way to think about what this means philosophically is that think of the story of Adam and Eve in paradise, uh, peace be upon them. They were told, go wherever you want, just don't eat this tree. Don't, don't come near this tree. And a side point, there's no apple or anything like that, either in the Muslim or Christian version of the story. That's the students always ask me, so where's the apple? Anyway, anyway, that's beside the point. But uh, the but point is that when uh, our rules on, on food and drink and essentially other actions, the actual rules are do whatever you want, just don't cross this boundary. Yeah. And so the metaphor many people will give is imagine you have uh, a field, you have a pole in the middle of the field and you have a horse whose neck is tied to the pole and so that whole range that the pole the horse can walk that is all within the hudud yeah. and then there's the famous hadith that where the prophet is reported to have said peace be upon him that what is haram is clear what is halal is clear and then you have the gray area yeah. and then people often misuse that hadith to basically say that okay the haram you can't do and the halal you can't do either right because it's all gray no, because uh, when you look at the rest of the hadith, what it's basically saying is that if you come near the haram, mm-hmm. just be careful because you're probably going to fall in. Because mm-hmm. even the the ayahs about the tree, they don't say don't eat from the tree; mm-hmm. they say don't come near the tree, right? Or the ayahs on zina don't say don't do zina; they say don't come near it, and and so. So likewise, the point is to try to imagine, when we're imagining hudud, it's also giving us a philosophical statement about, about actions, which is that everything is allowed. Just don't process boundary. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Sunday school Islam, Sunday school Islam gives you the impression that by default, everything is haram. Mm-hmm. And so then as a principle in Islamic law is that the burden of proof is on the person who says you can't do something. So whatever it is, stem cell research, you know, abortion, um, eating at Denny's, I don't know what, a, yeah, how do you like that for, for a list of three things, but um, the point being that the burden of proof is on the person who says you can't do it, not on the person who says you can, because just like we're saying, in principle, human nature, humans are sacred and good, the world is sacred and good, culture is sacred and good, it means that the default of any action is that it is good and permissible. Okay, and then what else was we, did we just see? Okay, so hokuk is, as we said, is the plural of health. is the common word for, for, for rights and such. Oh, yeah. So then we said that, uh, interestingly, hukuk did not refer to public or common rights. That's uh, more of a modern concept um, in the nation state, this idea of public rights and common rights, because what is part of the essence of the nation state? It's number one, it's domination of public space. And then, and then another aspect is citizenship in the nation and, and thus the rights that come with citizenship just by virtue of your citizenship. This is, this is modern. And then relate to that, which is related to what both of you are experts on now, mashallah, is, is coercive law. <clears throat> that uh, in the history of Muslim empires, for example you had immense amount of freedom on how you live your life as long as you paid your taxes and there was no fear that you were rebelling. That if there was a concern of a rebellion, then the king would be upset. But uh, as long as there was stability, the king uh, would uh, have tremendous esteem in being a benevolent king. And you would just have to pay your taxes. And a lot of times the king is just focused on expanding the kingdom or just perfecting the kingdom. This is whether we're talking about the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire or the Mughal Emperor, what have you. It's a modern concept going back at least 200 years, give or take, of this system of of public space, the public good, and then common rights. And so how was Pakuk al-Ibad then defined if we didn't have this notion of common rights and public good? material interests and benefits at the individual level, essentially meaning safety, promotion of good, and and opposition of harm. Which, if we were to sum up Sharia into one sentence, it would be removal of harm and promotion of benefit. That's literally the essence of Sharia. And if we were to reduce that, it would be removal of harm. Which means if if there's no issue, then there's no issue. You just live your life and do whatever it is you want to do, do whatever it is you need to do.
2: So you mean individual liberties? like I don't know what in America we would call like civil rights and li- civil liberties or individual liberties, but not necessarily, is that it?
0: Um, well, after your whole sentence, because uh, when I'm hearing criminology, uh, I, get, I get stuck there because you and I might mean two different things.
2: um so like like right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness you know things like like your basic rights as human being which includes security and other things mm-hmm. but not necessarily like communal rights um mm-hmm. is that what you're saying i'm i'm a little bit confused to be okay. honest maybe so, i missed something there
0: oh, no okay so so essentially what we're saying is that in terms of the rights of of, of the rights of people yeah you know, uh, we're saying that if you you have, for example, the principles and what we would speak about in the maqasid of the Sharia, right? Preservation of life, preservation of wealth, preservation of, of intellect, so forth and so on. But more often than not, these would be things that would not even be discussed unless there's a conflict.
3: Okay
0: and and what i'm suggesting is that in the format of the modern nation state there's a very conscious concept of public rights right and, and the rights of the individual and i'm suggesting that pre modernity pre nation states it may have been at most an assumed thing but not necessarily articulated as something to be concerned about
2: okay so it was just given it was it was a given
0: It was a given or it would come up whenever there's uh, what's the word? Uh, Whenever there is conflict. And so you get a court's focus on conflict resolution and such. But we're also speaking of generations where slavery, multiple types of slavery uh, is the norm. And and so the slaves would have certain types of rights related to harm and treatment. But it wasn't uh, considered to be part and parcel of the state itself. So when we're speaking about the constitution and the rights that it gives, especially the bill of rights, that's part and parcel of the whole federal government, it's the state. And so so if we have uh, uh, a traditional Islamic empire, you wouldn't have a constitution. You'd have courts without a constitution. And so, so try to comprehend how that would work.
2: Because the constitution is the Sharia, right?
0: So the, uh, so, so you're, you're touching on like one of the keys. Or like
2: fiqh of the land, whatever, the fiqh of the land, because the Sharia itself is just path to water. But
0: so, Yeah, so so the constitution uh, in a Muslim polity, a historical traditional Muslim polity, the closest to that would be the Quran,
2: the Quran, yeah.
0: But, you know, um, the Quran in terms of speaking about governance gives very little detail.
1: Yeah.
0: And so more, it'd be addressing things like interpersonal conflict. Right. Whereas the Constitution is actually giving us the structure of the government. It's giving us a separation of powers Mm -hmm. and all kinds of detail. And so, so I'm saying it's not as easy to say, here's the US Constitution and here's the Quran playing the same role. Because the, text of the Quran doesn't really speak very much about it.
2: Right. But what about the fiqh, like the fiqh that the land adopts or adapts to? Because isn't that how it worked? Everyone, every state had its own. They picked a fiqh and then that's how they okay. govern. OK.
0: So the, the key issue there is that the FIP would usually not be codified, though. Right. right? Okay. So you'd have precedence upon precedence upon precedence. Uh, uh, but in the way law is codified in our society, uh, it's it was often resistance to codifying it. It would be recorded, but not codified.
3: Got it. Um, can you define what you mean by codify with that? You're not talking flip flopping on your decisions, right? So for 10 years, you have one rule and then you change your mind.
0: Oh, good no. question. No. So it's more like saying that, okay, suppose uh, suppose uh, you and Amina are neighbors and and you have a conflict. And so you go to the judge because you're not able to resolve your conflict. And the judge, and let's say you want to do a, an expansion of your home. And and it's it's intruding on, on, you know, property or even the windows are intruding like you can see into her house or something. And you're not able to resolve it. And so the judge says, here's what you need to do. Uh, The judge's decision does not get codified in any capacity as the law of the land. So there isn't necessarily a body of legislators.
3: So it's a one time decision. That is not a rule of land, that rule of binding,
0: law. Person. That is not binding on any case except your own.
3: Okay, but it is binding on mine and I'm in a situation that we yeah. have to follow.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, in terms of the authority of, of how much power the judge has, yes. So we'll say okay. yes. So case-by-case analysis, right?
2: Case-by-case case analysis versus following any precedent. Oh, but uh, you do have those loose, like vague rules of precedent, but then... It's just yeah. case-by-case analysis but then how would it, people
3: know what the rule is like
0: so the point you know, being that's, when does it become an issue you know
3: but don't don't did those societies have norms that were just the law of the land and you just so, follow those rules regardless
0: so essentially yeah but another way to think about it is think about all the laws and codes we have in our society And most of them are focused on the operations of society. Like the state itself, whether we're speaking of Illinois or the United States, it's like a big corporation. And and so for the operations of the state, legislating this upon this upon this upon this. And, And so an empire has a bit of that, but not too much until the modern era where, where there's starting to be more and more of a push for a constitutional structure. Meaning whatever the King says goes. And if the King is cool with it, you know you do you do as you will. And you will have historian type people and other people that are just record all these events. Uh, but there isn't as much, I mean, so there'll be court records, mm-hmm. but not as much legislation.
3: Okay. So it's just not as fair at times it's
0: so that's a hard if list. the
3: king owed you a favor or not per se or how much you pull you had.
0: So part of the idea of the U.S. Constitution in particular is to try to reduce those types of corruption right I mean that's why we have separation of powers and then that's why we have the Bill of Rights it's to try it's the assumption is that people, if they can seize power, they're going to try to seize power, right? You know, if we get into the philosophy of the authors of the constitution, they're basically saying human nature when it comes to power is evil. And and so then they set up this structure to try to reduce exploitation. And And so what we'd say in the history of Islamic empires, you may have different instruments, but not the constitution preventing these things. So, for example, people would have the the right to complain to the king, or there would still be a structure of judges where, all right, you know, just like we have here. Okay, uh, I'm not happy with this judge. This judge has ruled. Let's go to a higher judge. So there are those things, and and so uh, the with the king exploitation is harder because the king is owning everything. And so he, as a servant of the king, the judge has that fear of, of losing the favor of the king. But as we see in modern monarchies, the king is still gonna prefer some people. And then in our society, we do have you know, these systems in place for institutions to operate, uh, but we're also seeing in 20, 2021 that it's very easy to exploit all of them. So what I guess uh, that our system is probably more fair I'd probably guess that, yeah, but that just might be my own American bias. You know, um, even something as you know, spending short periods of time overseas and loving to come back to to a Western country with institutions that at least have some order, you know. But the easier way to think about it is not so much which one is fair, which one is more better. It's just think of them as two two very very different approaches to to running a society. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's continue. Uh, I to mean, if you want to start with the rights of God.
1: The rights of God do not need a protector or vindicator because God is fully capable of redressing any transgressions committed against his boundaries or commands.
0: Okay, so this is, this is sort of like the point we made earlier, that uh, when we're assuming rights, we're assuming uh, the right not to be harmed. So that's almost like the most basic right. And with a law, you can't harm a law so, so not only on paper, on paper, like the rights of Allah and the rights of humans might just look like a list of rules, but there are two different philosophies because the rights of Allah are basically the things that you owe Allah just because Allah says so. You can't hurt Allah by not doing them. So the rights of humans are a little bit different, which we're about to see. Okay, continue.
1: But unlike God, human beings do not need an agent empowered to defend them and redress any transgressions committed against their personal properties. Therefore, the state is not simply empowered, but obligated to enforce the rights and obligations owed to people and may not legitimately ignore them or wave away. The state was precluded from enforcing the rights of God because the state was not God's representative and God had reserved these, sta- reserved these rights to his exclusive jurisdiction and province.
0: Okay, so it's this latter part that I especially want to focus on. Uh, when we look at the history of, of political thinkers in terms of, you know, the overlap of Islamic law and governance, the only thing where it seems like people are consistent of the rights of a law where they say the government can enforce these things seem to be prayer on men, meaning like in the masjid and zakat on everybody. You know, so like how in Iran and Saudi Arabia you have to cover yourself if you're a woman, um, that's a modern phenomenon as a government coercion. You know, we you know we can we can have the discussion about like how does it feel, how does it play on Islamic law, like we did I think some some weeks back, but in terms of government coercion, that's a it's a brand new phenomenon. But zakat and salah, uh, the general opinion is. If I am signing on to be a Muslim, then if I'm a Muslim man, I'm obliging myself to make my prayers in the Muslim. And if I'm signing on to be a Muslim, uh, whether I'm a man or a woman, I'm obliging myself to pay Zakat or to be evaluated whether or not I owe it or or, or such. Everything else, uh, uh, generally speaking, seems to be outside of what scholars would regard a government could enforce you know, on, on a population uh, in terms of the obligations to Allah. So, fasting can't enforce that. So, I mean, I don't even know how you would enforce that anyway, like forcing everything to shut down or something. Um, I don't know how you would enforce Hajj. So, the big ones would basically be Salon Zakah. What do y'all think about that? The government's right to. Enforce that?
3: Blasphemy seems something that they tend to enforce or they try to pull that into government.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, blasphemy Throughout laws.
3: Is it history or is it a new concept?
0: Blasphemy laws uh, go back, uh, guess how far? Give or take about 1979.
3: Really? Okay.
0: In, in the subcontinent and in, in Pakistan in particular, it's, it's literally that young.
3: Yeah. Okay.
0: And, but why were blasphemy laws put in? So what's taking place is that you have, uh, and different people have different narratives, but in terms of the way I understand it, you have uh, Zulfiqar Ali who who is leading Pakistan. And then you had some religious voices who felt that he was secularizing the country too much and exploiting the country too much. And, and by exploiting, I mean building casinos in poor areas. Mm-hmm. And, and so then you had this huge wave of religious zeal Some of it was inspired by the Iranian revolution, but it was basically in the air all over the Muslim world anyway. Because literally at the same time, you have the Iranian revolution, you have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And then in sub-Saharan Africa, there's also something else taking place right around the same time. And so what's taking place in Pakistan is this resurgence of a push to Islamify or re-Islamify Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And so, what happens? You have uh, Muhammad, uh, General Muhammad Ziyal Haq, who stages a coup, takes over Pakistan, has this intention to Islamify Pakistan. And there was a concern about the power that, that Adyanis Ahmadis had. And so, blasphemy laws are primarily targeting them. Um, and and so, so, this is uh, in the modern Islamic, in the modern religious state. So, in the modern nation state, if there's a church affiliation a fundamental question is who's part of your church so in israel this has been an ongoing issue you know even as, you know from our perspective we look at israel in terms of of you know what's you know wiping out of the palestinians and such within israel discourse one of their big issues is is the question of okay who's jewish who's not jewish and so reformed jews which are 80% of the jews in america still by and large are not officially jews in israel Ooh. African Jews uh, and so because what, what makes you Jewish your mother's Jewish right and so you have a lot of people who've converted to Judaism or you have a lot of people where the father is Jewish but married a Catholic woman or something and and so so that's one big issue there but then on top of that you'll have African Jews that may have been Jews for centuries that are not recognized and, and so anytime you have an official state religion you're also determining who is not part of your privilege class. That's it's not like
3: voting rights in the United States, back only when white male property owners could vote.
0: So so in the United States, that's how it would play out, right? And so in every other country, it's just according to, are you recognized as a full citizen? Got it. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and so so, so you all have no problems with, with the state, the Muslim polity saying that if you're a Muslim man, you have to pray in the masjid. And they can take the zakat from you. I mean, okay.
2: I, I, how do they derive their authority? I'm thinking probably because it's a communal right. Like if you have a right upon each other to do that,
3: mm-hmm. to maintain that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: or, upon, or the community has a right upon you that you maintain that, something mm-hmm. like
0: that. Yeah, so I, I, mean, the, go ahead.
3: I actually,
2: I mean, if you live in that community that I, and you are a Muslim, that I don't know if I would have a problem with that. Um,
0: so it's not like a surprise like it's it's an assumed thing yeah
2: it depends where they're deriving their authority like from and then what the thing is so the five pillars yes but anything beyond that then it's like yeah give me a higher like what's the evidence kind of Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and we're even saying of the five pillars it's basically if you fulfill pillar number one then if you're a man, you have to do number two. You have to do, you have, if you do the shahada, that means you have to make your prayers in the masjid. But the question becomes, how do they enforce that? And so what was the approach Saudi Arabia took? They had their, this, their infamous ministry of vice and virtue, which very often were actually ex-cons who were, who were basically going through a, pro, a process of reform, and this became their job. And so they would basically be in charge of a neighborhood to make sure that all the guys are making their prayers. And so the system of how to do that. Is
2: is that what happened back in the day too, or no?
0: So it does seem to be the case that the Prophet peace be upon him did have people specifically who had the job of making sure people made their prayers in the masjid.
3: Right. Why does that help the state though, to get all the males to come to the mosque?
0: So 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 that's if we reduce that to the most secular aspect of it. So forget forget God, forget the day of judgment for existence for, for a moment. Um, what does that give you? What is making all the prayers at the most should do? What do I think? So let's say Islam is completely made up.
2: Brotherhood and community.
0: So uh, I think it does create a certain type of, of discipline and, like you said, and community in a society. And in different empires, they either had a, a whole military or in the burgeoning empires, the men were basically the military. So could be along those lines. Or maybe there isn't really that much, you know, identifiable benefit, but this is something that Allah obliges. But the key point I'm making is that if you look at like the history of interpretation of all this, it seems like the only ritual practice, the only thing of the five pillars that scholars seem to agree that the state can enforce are these two things. Your, the daily prayers on the men and zakat. And um, and I mean, a question would be, can we uh, in, you know, in our modern collection of data, can we identify that the more people make their daily prayers, the better their conduct is? You know, I mean, I think we'd all like to say yes, but I'd be curious to find out what the actual data would show. Probably not. Yeah. OK, good. Um, who'd like to uh, read the, from the next paragraph? On or Ursula, either of you want to read?
2: OK, I'll go. She's shaking her head. <laughs> Okay, Bismillah. Muslim jurists, um, am I on the next paragraph? Okay. Muslim jurists clearly recognized the exceptionality and exclusivity of the sacred space and even jealously guarded it from the encroachments of the profane. Ironically, however, it is in dealing with the issue of God's clear boundaries and limits that the jurists most famously collapse the sacred and profane into a single space, at least in theory, if not in application.
3: No. I'm in a class.
2: And what is. Known as the hudud penalties, Muslim jurists asserted there is a category of divinely ordained punishments that apply to violations committed against a class of mixed rights, hukuk which are shared by God and human beings. As a category, mixed rights involve issues where the material interests or well-being of people are involved. But at the same time, there is a discernible divine will staking a specific claim for the divine over these issues in the case of the divinely ordained hudud penalties for reasons sorry i feel like i can't see the lines correctly. let me me, me make it bigger there you go for reasons not necessarily known to human beings god purportedly not only explicitly determined the punishable act and the exact penalty, but also the exact process by which the crime is proved and the penalty is carried out.
0: Okay, so we're about to see what they are. But what's being said here, this is kind of like where he seems to get really theoretical, long-winded without explaining what he's talking about. So he said that in terms of the rights of God, primarily there's two things uh, that are enforceable, prayer and zakat. Although... In terms of what I owe Allah, there's more than that, you know, like Hajj, at least once in my life, fasting and Ramadan and such. Uh, but then, then we said in terms of the rest of life, the basic principles are, you know, they can't harm anybody. And yet there are specific actions that are considered to be enforceable. And these are often called the hudud crimes. And, and so you can imagine all kinds of books trying to philosophically determine what is it, how do these relate to the operations of a society? And so now we're going to see a list of, of these core uh, hudud crimes. Uh, so go ahead. I think you're at although not all.
3: Although not all. Okay. Although not all the hudud crimes
2: are mentioned in the text of Quran, a general jurisdiction juristic consensus was not was set to exist as to the divine origin of the penalties in the classical tradition fornication or adultery zina robbery (sarika), consumption of alcohol defamation kadf, and apostasy (rida) were the violations most commonly included within the hudud
0: there's two more that, that i'm that are not here that i'm forgetting but yeah these are the big five and so let's stop here for a second uh, do they look? Can can we um, make any sense of why would the Quran be emphasizing these specific things? Any thoughts? Like if we were to get like the philosophy of governance, you know, uh, why is so? Like for example, in American culture, you know, zina. Is not very much of a crime anymore, you know. It can be an issue in terms of custody when there's a divorce. It used to be a crime, but it's not. Whereas here, it's a federal crime. You know, to use to use terminology. Uh, Theft is is a federal crime, a crime against the state. Consumption of alcohol is a crime against the state as a defamation and apostasy. Apostasy we always hear about, we'll talk about that in a bit. Any thoughts?
2: I think it can be argued that these things can create instability um, and fitna, right? Like what we call fitna in society.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and I mean, adultery and fornication, I mean, with without knowing who the father is or allowing things like this, uh, it would create and, and, and Islam is a pretty patriarchal society. So it would create a huge problem mm-hmm. if there were no limits or hudud on this.
0: Mm-hmm. Any thoughts? That,
2: that would be my thought.
0: I'm sure. um, not Any thoughts?
1: I'm just so surprised because like defamation, I mean, it's like such a not a big deal in America. <laughs> Could it be
3: just to keep society, the good of the society as a whole, Mm-hmm. Just like um, Hani, was mentioning right that this, to keep the society stable, not mm-hmm. to create um, conflict in between individuals, especially land owning men, I guess. Sure. So,
0: I'm gonna. Were you mentioning anything else?
1: I'm just. I mean, it's just. It's surprising, right? What are federal crimes kind of like you said in a, in Islam compared to it not being a really big deal here?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's just what I'm. Kind of still stuck
0: on wow <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's again look at it almost like a different galaxy or different universe and yeah one way to look at this or one way that this is interpreted is that perhaps these are the sources of instability in society mm-hmm. yeah. and so so zina is is a destruction of the core relationship of marriage and then by extension family Theft, how is that uh, affecting stability? It's, I mean, if, it, uh, if people are getting away with it, then it's literally affecting your sense of safety. Mm-hmm. What about consumption of alcohol? You know, it's almost like if you remove alcohol from America, you change America fundamentally. Like uh, when I'm talking to my undergrads about professional life, you know, I tell them like half the jokes are about booze. And all the social events are, are booze-related. And I'm in campus ministry, and at Christmas season, the whole building smells like alcohol. And, you know, wine is part of literally uh, Catholic observances. And then for us, it's, it's fascinating because it's literally the, you know, the opposite. And so, so the prophet, peace be upon him, he's reported to have said that, that consumption of alcohol is, and to paraphrase, is essentially the root of evil, all evil. Right? Obviously, love of dunya and those things who are the spiritual roots. But in terms of actions. Uh, what about defamation? So, like, I'm going to mentioned the point about defamation is not a big deal here, but it's a federal crime here.
1: They're like backbiting, right?
0: So, it would include backbiting. Uh, so, so, think of the difference between backbiting and slander. Backbiting is if it's true.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Slander is if it's false. But both of those would be included, included here. And so one of the fundamentals of Sharia is the protection of dignity.
2: Right. I was going to say reputation was, is a big thing in Islam versus in America. That's not something we value. Yeah. As much.
0: yeah. In fact, I mean, <clears throat> uh, and when we get into the higher levels of popularity in society, it's almost like the opposite. Everything becomes TMZ. Like there's all the discourse about Britney Spears and the new documentary about her and the criticisms of the documentary about her and such that the uh, um, yeah, you remember what I'm talking about here, like the whole Free Britney movement. Yeah. So so I
2: said I haven't caught up on it. I, I've I've read the hashtags, but
0: yeah, yeah. So yeah, so there's the whole movement you know to, to support her in this documentary. I haven't seen the documentary yet, but then there's been all kinds of criticisms of the documentary saying it's doing the exact same thing that it's accusing everybody else of in terms of devouring her you know, Mm -hmm. or for fandom and and proper consumption. Um, What about apostasy? So there, I think we'd understand it from the context of of stability. Uh, But this is one of those controversial topics about, you know, getting the death sentence for apostasy. Why is apostasy such a serious thing? Or why could it be such a serious thing? Because
1: it can take so many others with them.
0: That'd be part of it. In, in, Uh, Until the modern era, you know, so we said part of the modern era, the nation state era, is that your membership in in society was based on citizenship. Whereas in these Islamic polities, your membership in society was based on your religion. And so Mm -hmm. if you were converting, you were effectively joining the other side. Rebellion. Yeah, it it was literally synonymous with rebellion. And, and so a way to think about it is today in America, in Chicago in 2021, your, or America in 2021, your religious identification is your personal business. You don't even need one. Okay. Whereas in the pre-modern era, in these Muslim polities, that was literally your citizenship. And so they're busy fighting the Romans. If you convert to Christianity, you're effectively joining the other side. And so it was synonymous with rebellion
2: can we talk about consumption of alcohol for a second i was thinking is that because mindfulness is a big is is a being mindful of all things that you do yeah is valued in islam to a very high degree
0: absolutely like if we look at each of these and connect these with the maqasid the higher aims of, of sharia there is protection of intellect Robbery is, is addressing protection of property or, or wealth. Adultery okay. is protection of lineage. Defamation is protection of dignity. And apostasy is protection of deem. Like these That's are- what
2: e- they are. They're basically
0: ways e- to, yeah. Okay. literally connected with one of the higher purposes. Got it. Yeah. And so, so it would be in, by the issue of intellect, what we're saying is that intellect is central to your existence as a human being. And by consumption of alcohol, you're erasing that, which then means your behavior is going to follow in all kinds of unhappy ways. And so, yeah, the punishments for for consumption of alcohol were were heavy duty. But What's fascinating here is murder is not on this list. Murder was not a crime against the state. Murder was a crime against a family.
3: Right, murder would be under robbery of life right so you're
0: so, robbing life by essentially so, in, in this context when they're speaking of of sadiqa, robbery it would be more like material okay yeah philosophically your, your point would be valid but in terms of like this listing okay. you know, um, it's straight up murder as we as we speak of it but yeah it was uh, murder was um uh, what's the word it's um, a it's a crime against the family as opposed to a crime against the state Whereas adultery is a crime against the state. Consumption of alcohol is a crime against the state. And of course, uh, uh, if you are not a Muslim, some of these laws may not apply to you. So for example, even in Iran today, uh, what is it called? It's like Shirazi wine uh, is actually produced and sold by a Christian community in Iran. Muslims are not allowed to buy it. But the Christian community is allowed to produce it, sell it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so would this apply to all the residents or just the Muslims? This would at least apply to the Muslims in the society. The apostasy would obviously not apply to, to non-Muslims. Okay, let's see. Why,
2: wouldn't it, uh, why wouldn't it apply to non-Muslims? I mean, still causing stability in the state. It doesn't oh. follow logically to me.
0: Meaning uh, apostasy? Or you're no, just doing all, all these crime things.
3: Crime. All of it, alcohol or robbery or what whatnot.
0: So a way to think about this is that in many Muslim polities, they literally would have a different court system for you know, the different religious communities. And again, in our society today, like if you go to any city in America, everybody's mixed in together to the point that even in a person's house, you might have three different religions represented. Whereas in past times this community living over here they're all catholics this community living over here they're all jews this community living over here they're all muslims and such and so often a a community underneath the muslim polity so like a jewish community or a christian community would have their own court system except in matters of conflict where it's crossing over so it's kind of like saying the religious law or the family law would often have its own specific court system but uh, how would it uh, then apply here? Like, for example, usually religious communities are not allowed to do any proselytization. So like, you know, Christianity, which historically is an evangelical tradition, you would not be allowed to preach Christianity in the Muslim polity.
3: And vice versa, the Muslims couldn't go in and preach in their principality then?
0: So Even
3: though it's a Muslim kingship per se?
0: So the the what the Christians and Jews in particular, they would pay jizya, uh, which was essentially paying for security and protection to live in the state. And so they wouldn't have obligations like to pay the zakat and they wouldn't have obligations like to serve in the military and such. You know, they would have the same rights in terms of justice. So if a Muslim commits a crime against me, you know, and I'm a Catholic in, in the Muslim polity, I still have you know full rights and such, but I would also, uh, so I would not have some obligations that the Muslim has, but I also might not have some privileges like leadership in the society, but even that would vary too, because uh, in different Muslim polities, you even see uh, orphans of Christians are then getting raised to become part of the, the ministry and such, sometimes even being converted to Islam and such, but as a general principle, you know, the you would have your own court system and you'd have jizya. That you'd be paying a tax to, uh, a tax of the state which from the outside in looks like second second-class citizenship uh, i associate it more with like having a green card
2: would the judge be a non-muslim too
0: so if it's like the muslim the, the christian court system it would be christian judge okay. you know, like a, a christian patriarch and all of that
2: yeah it makes sense for them
0: Yeah, and and, and so you'll find some people that will really point out, like, so even, so you had Zoroastrians, and will point out that there's some things that are allowed in Zoroastrian law that are not even close to being allowed in Islamic law, you know, like, you know, things that we would see as incestuous relationships that would be allowed in those particular communities because that's in their law. Okay. Uh, let's see how much more before we finish the paragraph. Let's actually stop right here because we're already at an hour. Um, but uh, let's pick up right at the sentence next time, inshallah, right after the hudud to we'll talk more about the hudud and such. Okay, any questions about anything?
2: Just quickly, higher maqasid, what are they? Can I write them down? I know you said family. Yeah.
0: So <clears throat> so the maqasid in terms of the higher principles, uh, what you find common among all the schools are the following six, not necessarily in particular order, just the order that I'm remembering them: the preservation of life, the preservation of religion, the preservation of intellect, the preservation of lineage, the preservation of wealth, and the preservation of dignity. And then the list gets much further, you know, but those are the core.
1: But what,
0: what's the definition in, of maqasid? So maqasid would essentially in our purpose it would be sort of like the spirit of the law, but uh, it's often translated as the higher purposes of the law. So you would have usul, which is the literal interpretation of scripture. And then maqasid is saying, all right, when you take the whole text of the Quran and the sunnah, these are some priorities that we see. So, so you know, we see life, there's a focus on preservation of life. And there's a preservation on lineage and such. And so when someone's then interpreting, they're gonna be looking at the usul, if there's text, if there's scripture that is relevant to this specific issue at hand. And then they're gonna negotiate that with the higher purposes. Which is saying what that you got the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, you want to make sure the implementation of the letter of law doesn't contradict the spirit of the law. And then the third thing you're going to be negotiating with would be if there's a common practice in that particular society and how they do things, then we also have to take that into consideration. So the easiest example of that, this we might have looked at some weeks ago, there's this big long ayah at the end of Surah al-Baqarah about taking out loans. And in there, you know, it says, okay, if you're taking out a loan, write it down. Let the person who is taking out the loan dictate. And if they're a child or if they don't have the mental capacity, have the representative dictate uh, and have witnesses, two men or one man and two women. Right. And so the first question is that, okay, is this uh, considered to be an actual rule or is it a recommendation? And the overwhelming opinion seems to be this is a recommendation. So the text is saying write it down uh, the debtor dictates and then you have the witnesses uh, but so that would be the the text but then the higher principles are in the text you want to minimize doubt and you want things to be fair and and so then you have a third issue which is how do you take out loans in American society the witness of a, of a human being so not even limited to, to binary gender uh, they're all considered to be the same but I can take out a loan right now on the internet that doesn't even involve human beings and it's still recorded and it's still enforceable and so you would negotiate those three things to figure out all right if this particular loan i'm taking is itself. so that applied to any aspect of life
2: and we said anytime there's a reasoning given after a verse after a command if there's a reasoning given then it's a recommendation and not a rule correct Is it's a.
0: That- uh, i wouldn't say any time but often yeah.
2: okay but that's what you had said yeah. okay yeah. Yeah. often not okay
0: it's so exactly again it's not a
2: rule it's just
0: yeah okay. uh, think of it as a as a principle of interpretation
2: okay principle yeah that's what you had said thank you
0: it's just like like it tells us to pray but doesn't really tell us why to pray so okay that means we have to okay
2: thank you
0: but in in most cases Here's the rule. And then somewhere around there, it'll sell us, okay, here's the benefit of following. Cool, any other questions or thoughts?
1: Like with fasting, doesn't it say, is it fasting or? French? So
0: fasting, it does say that there's a benefit to fasting, you'll get taqwa, right? But meaning taqwa, it's, it's not something you can really measure or evaluate. And so, uh, but even then, Those fasts are considered to be recommended. The fasting of Ramadan, which is literally two ayahs later, it just does fast. Anything else? All right. Well, let me just make sure we're cool for next week. I don't want to be cancelling all y'all again. Uh, Yeah, we're good. We're good, Inshallah. So next week, Inshallah, Chicago time, 7.30. Barring any... Naps or major tragedies or anything like that. Okay, Insha'Allah. So we'll continue uh, next week. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nasta khiruka wa natubi ilaha. Allahumma Glory to you, o Allah. Wa bihamdika. Praise and gratitude are to you. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. We bear witness. There is no God but you. Nasta We seek your forgiveness. Wa natubi ilaha And we turn to you. All right. word you all. Inshallah. Good discussion. And we'll continue next week. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh
1: that